and welcome to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research here at Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. I'm a graduate student myself, and I'll be your hostess for the show here on KALX Berkeley. So today I'm talking to John O'Hay, a PhD student at the Berkeley Institute of Design. So welcome, John O. Thanks. Uh, we're going to be talking about his work on fostering creativity and innovation in design. So first, can you give us a brief introduction to your work? Yeah, certainly. So um, I really study, I would say, new product development, so coming up with new consumer products. Um, and what I'm really interested in, uh, my background is engineering, and so I guess I have most experience in you know, how to make things. Um, but what I'm really interested in now is what you should be making in the first place. So I think there's two stages, the what to make and the how to make. And so I'm trying to get my head around those. Mm. Um, and I know that there's two critical design challenges that you're looking at specifically. So can you talk a little bit about what those are? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I would say that I study um, design teams as they frame a design challenge Um so let me give you an example of that. So one of the teams that I've I've looked at, we had um, actually at Berkeley, they were looking at um, motorcycle protection. And they came in with this idea that uh, when motorcyclists are in accidents, um, they often get more injured than they should do. And that's probably because of inadequate like protection and gear. And so they came in sort of setting out to to solve this problem. And what they found is when they spoke with motorcyclists and drivers was that actually the real issue was that the motorcyclists weren't being seen in the first place. So the cars just didn't see the motorcyclists. And so they really switched it around. Originally, they were making like um, better protective gear. And at the end, they made a system of like lights on the bikes so that they would be better seen. And so there, um, the team really figured out, you know, what they should be making in the first place. And so they reframe their, their design challenge. And so I studied that. And so that's like the main challenge design teams face is how to figure out what to make. And the other thing is that designers are made up of teams um, from all different disciplines. So you've got business students, you've got engineers, you've got designers. And somehow everybody on this team with different backgrounds has to agree on what they're doing. And so that's the other challenge is how to get everybody on the same page. So what have you found uh, as far as creating successful versus unsuccessful frames? Typically, when um, when design teams come into a project, what they think is the real need turns out not to be it. And so what I found is that um, one of the best things to do is to kind of assume an attitude of learning as if as a design team you come in and you know nothing. And mm. the real goal is to really just... Um, understand your users and real build empathy for them so you can see the situation from their perspective. Mm. Okay, so let's um let's talk about the getting everybody on the same page. So, is your intention to develop some kind of language that people who are on the same team but come from different disciplines can use to communicate with each other? Um that's a good question. I'd say kind of. I'd say um if you uh, if you watch design teams as long as I have, you'll see pretty quickly that um, they definitely develop their own kind of language. And so they start they start talking about their, their own words and they have particular like nuances to the meanings of them, for example. And so um, a design team, when, when they're trying to say they're discussing a bunch of concepts and they're talking about whether or not they're feasible, 
it turns out that everybody on the team probably has a slightly different idea of what feasible means. Mm-hmm. And so um, the engineer is thinking, you know, well, is this something we can make? And then the, the business person is thinking, well, is this something we can sell? Mm-hmm. And so it's um, those kind of subtleties that if the team doesn't realize that they have misunderstandings about them, then they get into conflict. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So so clearly, if you were to develop a common language, you could do that verbally or non-verbally. But right now, you're talking about words. So let's let's stick with words for a second. But you're referring to the same word being used differently in different disciplines. And do you also find that a lot of times different disciplines use the same concepts but are just using different words for them? And how do you deal with that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there's some design tools and activities that really help teams get around this. Like if you try and build a mission statement, mm-hmm. it helps get this kind of discussion out in the open and you discuss what you mean by these words and these these differences come up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you're also interested in metaphors. So can you talk a little bit about how that might be useful for people from dis- different disciplines who are trying to communicate with each other? Yeah, I can, I can talk a bit, a bit about that. So I was, um, I was really interested in creative design. And I took a class here at Berkeley called the Neural Theory of Thought and Language. Wow. And there I learned about um, some of George Lakoff's work on, on metaphor here. Mm-hmm. And what, what I realized – so um, – his work in, on conceptual metaphor is, for example, that um, we understand abstract concepts in terms of concrete things. Um, we do that using metaphors. So, for example, we understand time in terms of space. You know, if I say um, something is a long way off, long is a space concept. It's a distance, right? But we understand time in terms of distance. Mm-hmm. And the same is true in design. So, design is actually we a lot of abstract concepts. So, we have ideas, we have problems, we have solutions, we have the design process itself. And so... Uh, um, I began to try and collect a list of all the different phrases we use to talk about design to try and understand the different metaphors we use to, to get a grasp of this abstract concept. So on the nonverbal side, as far as trying to get people from different disciplines to communicate with each other, what, what kinds of things have you experimented with? Have you used um, different visualization techniques like mind mapping or kinesthetic things like dance? Um. Or music, I, right? Well, actually, I say at the moment, so I'm I'm studying design, so I see what design teams do. But there's actually, yeah, and there's definitely um, a lot of techniques which really help. So, for example, we find that industrial designers on the team typically are really good at sketching, and so sketching plays a really co- great role in getting all this abstract. Um, like words, concrete. And so everybody is on the same page when they see a sketch. You're like, Mm -hmm. okay, it's much more difficult to argue with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And the same is true, I think, um, I talk about, I study new product development, but much of what people develop these days perhaps might be services or experiences. And Mm -hmm. these things are much better, like, for example, acted out Mm-hmm. In in a in a like a skit or a scenario than they are like just talked about, mm-hmm. and so I see those kind of activities go on a lot in teams, and they really help people get on the same page and also communicate with the people you're trying to sell this to. Mm. So, out of all the different things that you've played around with for getting people on the same page, mm-hmm. what have you found useful, and how, do you find that you use different kinds of techniques in different situations or for different kinds of design projects? Um. I, I would say there are some there are some different things you could do um, depending on the project, but there's um, I'd say I found four things which are really like um, pretty much applicable across almost all design projects. And the first one I, I kind of alluded to earlier is this having an attitude of learning. Mm. Um, in that, a big mistake teams often make is assuming that they know what the problem is before 
before they've actually gone and done their research. And so you come in with an attitude of confirming what you already know as opposed to learning. So that's one of them. The other one is about sharing um, sharing all your research data really richly with your team. And that's as much as possible um, using things like video and photographs and, say, transcripts and exact quotes. And that really helps people rather than, say, paraphrasing what I found out with the team. It helps keep people on the same page. Um, and perhaps the one of the other ones is um, the idea that a lot of teams come into projects wanting to do something really innovative, right? Teams want to do something cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you find is that if you set out to do something cool, actually you end up – you come up with a lot of wild, crazy ideas and you end up having to cross them off as you go through and you end up doing something really boring. And yeah. so really the best way to come in is say, I don't want to do something innovative as such. I want to – just solve a problem that people really have. And in doing that, you will be doing something innovative. Uh-huh. And so I think that's an important thing too. Was there a fourth one? There is a fourth one, yeah. So the other one is about <laughs> making decisions on common bases. Um, and that's about teams like taking the time to discuss these differences in like language that they use. And um, for example, if, you do a, if, you're, if you're trying to decide between concepts and you do a vote, and you have a team that's split half and half, and then one person decides it, and you go one way. Well, you haven't really decided anything because half the people thought the other thing was a better thing to do. And so the idea there is you have to get these differences out on the table and understand why people have these different opinions. And so you all move forward together as a team. Hmm. Good. Okay, so let's, uh, let's go back to metaphors. Um, mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what the design metaphor database is and what your intention was in creating it? Yeah. Um, as I say, I was trying to un- understand how people um, understood design because design is an abstract thing. Um, and I was, yeah, I was struck by many of the traditional approaches, um, at least from engineering, is that it's a process of search and selection. And when you're a design team doing design, it doesn't feel like that at all. Um, there's also some, for example, where I, so I, I created this big list of um, all these phrases that we used to talk about design and then went through them to try and find metaphors. And for example, we, we have a really common metaphor that ideas are objects. And oh. so we can go into a brainstorming session, you and I, and we could just bounce some ideas around, right? And we can bounce these ideas around because we think of them as objects. Um, one of the, the, I guess, big issues I have, I think, is that there's a lot of metaphors around um, having a trade-off or having a compromise or finding a balance between different parameters, for example, in, in design. And I really like fundamentally believe that good design happens when you don't accept these trade-offs or balances or compromises. But the way we talk about design makes it very hard to do that. Mm. So on your website, you write about how you've spent a great deal of time creating a great solution to the wrong problem. <laughs> it seems like implicit in this is, is um, a design metaphor or some way of understanding problem, solution, design. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about what you meant by this and in general which, which, metaf- which design metaphors you like to use? Um, well, I guess one of the ways I, I see the, the great solution to the wrong problem is about the figuring out what to make rather than how to make and getting that right. So I think I think the Segway is a is pretty good example. So the Segway, this, the human transporter, was supposed to revolutionize you know, transport as we know it, but they kept it a, a secret during all development, and it was the sudden launch. And actually they didn't really, because they didn't do user research as you would if you're developing a, a traditional product, 
um, they didn't realize that there's all these social issues around, you know, if I'm two foot taller than everybody else going down the sidewalk, then it feels a bit strange, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there they um, perhaps did – they solved the problem really well, but it was perhaps the wrong problem in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps another case, I've been um, doing a, a study with uh, a friend who started a business. He found a, a fantastic way to keep people in shape and actually it takes like 10 minutes every two weeks – um, and he started a business around this thing, and you don't even have to like get changed, right? You don't even break into a sweat because it's only ten minutes long. Um, and he was having trouble explaining this as as exercise, right? Because people are like, "Well, you know, that doesn't feel like exercise to me. I'm supposed to be hot and sweaty and what whatever." Um, but he thought this would be great for people who went to the Work. gym all the time, right? Yeah. Because you've got a busy schedule, right. and now it just takes ten minutes. Right. But what he found was that um, it wasn't good for the people he thought it would be for because. People who go to the gym actually go to the gym for lots of other reasons. And so, mm. for example, you know, I go there, you know, because socialize right to socialize. Girls. Yeah, that's I'm going to go there to, to find a girlfriend. And so, for all of these people, <laughs> right. doing exercise in ten minutes wasn't what they wanted. And so, uh-huh. he had to find a totally different market to market huh. to. Okay, um, so do you think? I'm curious. Do you think that every problem has a solution? That's a good question. Um, I think it really depends on whether you it, it really depends on whether you see something as a problem in the in the first place. So a lot of things engineers are trained to see problems everywhere, but I think very often perhaps it's not a problem, and there's there's perhaps something else you can build from it. But well, for them, yeah. every problem has a solution, but they are the ones who can solve it. <laughs> That's right. right. That's right. <laughs> Um, have you ever looked at permaculture design principles? Are you familiar with permaculture? I'm not. So permaculture, you could consider it a subset of biomimicry. So it's just, um, but applied to the design of agricultural systems. So okay. agricultural systems and human settlements designed according to the principles and processes of, of nature. But mm-hmm. so... There are 12 design principles, and you might, you might enjoy looking at them. But one of them is produce no waste, design systems to make use of all outputs so that no waste is produced. And you oftentimes hear, it's not an excess of snails, but a deficiency of ducks. Right? <laughs> so in this sense, the problem is not a problem. It's, it's a solution to another problem right the excess of snails is not a problem it's a solution to the fact that there's there's a deficiency of ducks right so i feel like this is kind of an interesting design metaphor right every problem is actually a solution Mm -hmm. to another problem or or that the um the design challenge is not to solve the problem in isolation right to zoom in on the problem but to identify some kind of relationship that needs to be created between two seemingly isolated problems that are part of the same system and then that the relationship is the solution. Yeah, I, I see um, that, for example, there's one way of looking at things. So, you, you know, if I have a lot of electronics produces like heat, right? And so some ways you can see this heat as a problem and something to get rid of. Um, or you could look at that heat as a resource and something to be useful mm-hmm. for. And I think, you know, it's it really depends on how you see it like how you see the snails for example if um one of the examples i give in in workshops is about delivering pizza right? and it takes a while to deliver pizza from the pizza store to the to your house and it often turns up cold and so engineers might see that as okay we got to stop it getting cold 
But then perhaps a marketing person is saying, well, okay, well, how can we sell cold pizza? <laughs> right? And so right. it really depends on how you see that. Right. So this is actually starting to sound a little bit like Triz, but um, we'll talk about Triz in a second. So for those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to The Graduates on Calex. Today I'm talking to John O'Hay of the Berkeley Institute of Design about his work on fostering creativity and innovation in design. So TRIZ, which is uh, a methodology that you work with, can you first describe it a little bit? Yeah, certainly. So uh, TRIZ actually is often pronounced TRIZ in the U.S. Ah, TRIZ. Um, it's a Russian acronym, um, and it means loosely translated as the theory of inventive problem solving. And it was, has a really interesting background. It was started by um, a guy called Geinrich Altschiller, who worked as a patent officer in the Russian Navy. And he had this um, interesting job of um, looking through patents in number order and as he was looking through all these patents as part of his job he noticed these patents and so um across all these different industries that these patents were from um they found he found that they were solving the same problems again and again and actually using the same solution tricks and so he was tired of this kind of trial and error innovation and wanted to systematize it a bit and so he codified these patents and from that came this this theory of inventive problem solving Uh um can you give us an example of how you've used it or how it's been used? Yeah, so um, before I came to Berkeley, actually, I worked at a company and we used a lot of the techniques from, from Triz to help develop products. I did some work with sugar. There was a company who made sugar cubes and nobody was buying sugar cubes anymore. So they're like, what's the future of sugar? It, it, was, it was one of those um, great solutions to the wrong problems, actually, for <laughs> me. So um, we, th- we thought, for example, so one of the ideas that I really liked we really liked, and Trist says is a good good idea, is, is spray sugar. So spray sugar has all these advantages that it, it mixes instantly, it spreads over a nice area, it's easy to apply, all these things. Um, but people don't relate to spray sugar the same way they do with regular mm-hmm. sugar cubes. And actually what um, ended up being developed was really simple. It was um, flavored sugar. And so you could put um, – one sugar cube in your coffee and it would taste like an Irish coffee or you could put one sugar cube in your coffee and it would taste like a vanilla coffee. So that was the the really simple idea that that came out again. I think that's another example of we were aiming for something that was cool, that was innovative, but Mm -hmm. actually in the end the the solution is really simple. Did did it sell? Yeah, it actually won some um, food product awards in Europe. It's over in Belgium, unfortunately. Where can we buy flavored sugar cubes? I don't think I've ever actually seen them. No, you have to go to Europe to uh, find them, unfortunately. Um, so another methodology that you work with is design ethnography. So can you also talk a little bit about what that is and how you've used it? Yeah, so um, design ethnography, I'd say, is, is a really popular method, particularly around the sort of design firms in the Bay Area. Um, and the idea is that um, the only way you can figure out What's worth making is if you really spend time with your customers and get to know them, like your potential users. So for an example, uh, an example would be if you're a, um, a company that makes suitcases, um, what you need to do is go and understand what people do with suitcases. And so you might be focused on, okay, well, how can we make it easier to carry and how can we make it easier to put stuff in? But if you went and watched people at the airport and what they did, you might actually see that everybody's sitting on their suitcases all the time that they're waiting. But none none of the suitcases are designed for sitting on. Um, And so it's those kind of observations which you only get from like 
um, going in context where people are using the products and listening to what people say about them that that help you do that and that that I'd say is what the design ethnography pushes at the moment. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that it's becoming more prevalent that big companies who design whether products or services are increasingly going to have resident sociologist, mm -hmm. anthropologist, resident ethnographers? Absolutely, and yeah, it's it's happening already. So a lot of the um, a lot of the bigger firms have, I'd say, resident anthropologists, pretty much in there. So Intel, for example, does a lot of research with, and the anthropologists will be the first people to go out and come back with some insights about the people, about needs that aren't being met, and then it's the turned over to the design team and the engineers to figure out how to meet those needs. Hmm. But yeah, that's absolutely. And so I I think one of the things that we help try to train people here at Berkeley with is. Um, these aren't traditional skills for like mm -hmm. designers and engineers. Is like listening to people and observation. <laughs> what, you, what you're more likely to do is solving problems, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's definitely some like increasingly in demand and something that will be yeah more common as we go on. Mm -hmm. Which will make the tools that you're working on also in demand because you're going to have to have the ethnographer <laughs> communicate with the designers and the engineers. That that's the plan. And actually, I mean. The reason why I'm interested in this is because in some sense it's fairly new and people are doing this now, but not that many people have studied you know, how these teams work together. And in some sense it's quite difficult to study. I, I sometimes see myself in research as kind of being an ethnographer. Like the only way I can find out what goes on is if I spend enough time with teams and listen to them and see what they do. And so in some sense I'm a design ethnographer for research. Uh-huh, a design ethnographer of design ethnography. Exactly. Okay, so... Um Creativity, innovation, design, these are these big abstract concepts. So I wanted to talk about them with you a little bit. So to start with creativity, can you talk about how you understand what it is? Yeah, yeah, I can do my best. As you say, it's a, it's a big topic, and I think it's um, quite misunderstood at the moment. So the I say I came in studying creative design, and I think um, much of creativity is an attitude. Um, and as an attitude and a set of skills, it's something that can definitely be taught. Um, I really like the work of a psychologist called Mihai um, Mihai, and he says that um, he found out through some studies that um, creative people have um, contradictory personalities, so that once they're kind of imaginative but they can also be realists they can be like very stubborn but they can also be you know very humble for example um and so in some sense there's some personality aspects to it but also an attitude um but creativity is also affected by the environment a great deal um i think that there's a, a fun example of i think it was nokia who were looking at you know how do they get creative um creative insights in their offices and they they found that actually nobody talks in elevators the only way people had productive collaboration was in these sort of casual conversations and they met it turns out on the staircase and so what they did when they realized this was they got rid of all their elevators because you know nobody ever talks in elevators and they made all their staircases twice as big so there was enough room for people to walk past each other and stand at the side and chat and so a lot of it is about the environment there and, and having people around you doing stuff for example so um, taking that and applying it, how, how, from your work, what have you found that helps foster creativity, building mm -hmm. staircases? I mean, creating <laughs> environments that you find are conducive to it? Or um, I, think, I think there's a number of things. Um, 
there's there's some parts in in design teams and the way like there's the environment and that you meet in for example um there's a field called proxemics proxemics which is the study of social distances and for example you find that um really high ceilings tend to keep things um people talk from the surface level all the time but if you take the ceiling down and make it really low then people have much more intimate conversations mm. that's why there's the you know the big cathedral is very austere but the confession booth is this little box you know mm. um and so you know it, the atmosphere that a design team works in and being able to keep up the information that they're working on about their users and things around the walls that can make a huge difference but i also think that you know there's there's part there's a place for creativity in the design process, but again, I think the really important thing is finding out something that's worth doing in mm-hmm. the first place. Okay, so um, your master's thesis, the title, Development of a New Tool to Guide Innovation During Upstream Project Phases. So this implies that there are upstream and downstream phases. Mm-hmm. Right in the design process, and and that there are different tools for guiding innovation or creativity uh, in different phases. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk a little bit about how how you conceive of the design process? Maybe what the yeah. phases are and what tools you might use, whether TRIZ or design ethnography or other ones, um, at the different phases. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so, you, first of all, you can tell that I did my master's thesis before i realized how important a title was um hey, that's why it was across three it's page, a, it, pages it gives me a lot of information <laughs> that i didn't even have to read it and i feel like i understand but i feel like i feel like in the early stages of a project the most important thing is doing your user research mm-hmm. right and that's where the tools of observation and, and listening and doing your the design ethnography comes in is most important. And then later on, when you figure out what it is you're going to make, it's all about how do you make it. And then you can throw in, you know, whatever technical tools you have and anything from the TRIZ toolbox. And you might have some brainstormers where you might need to, you know, um, get really creative. And then you, there's a whole wealth of creativity tools. And that's those stages, those come in. And then you go out and you build something and you test it and you come back and you learn that it was all wrong and you have to do it all again. Mm-hmm. And that's when persistence comes in and mm-hmm. you have to keep building. So I think all of these tools like have a place, but at different stages in the process. Hmm. Great. Okay, so we will be right back. So on next week's show, I'll be talking to Matt Earp from the Information School about his work on online networks of musicians and fans and the effect of technology on the social listening experience. So please join me for The Graduates every Monday from 12 to 12.30 on CalEx. And if you have general feedback, ideas for graduate students to interview, or if you'd like to be interviewed yourself, don't be shy. Send an email to thegraduatescalex at aol.com. That's thegraduatescalex, all one word, at aol.com. Welcome back. Today I'm talking to John O'Hay, a Ph.D. student at the Berkeley Institute of Design, about his work on creativity and innovation in design. So I understand that piano is a big part of who you are. And, uh, and you play beautiful music, by the way. I downloaded <laughs> Colbert Cottage last night, which you can find, among other tracks, at Jono's website, at palojono.com. That's P-A-L-O-J-O-N-O.com. I'm giving you a plug. (laughs) 
Um, so piano, can you talk a little bit about how playing piano has fed into your work? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been doing music for a long time, I guess. And I guess for me, it has a lot of, it has a lot of benefits. It's a huge relaxation to me. Like if I get back from a stressful day, just I, the thing I could do most easily is just sit at the piano for hours and, and try and come up with new things. It's also like this sort of whole brain experience. If you spend a lot of time doing, you know, left brain stuff at work, it's nice to come back and do some, do some right brain, um, music on the piano. Um, but the, I guess another thing is I talked about this curse of seeing things everywhere. I see the same kind of um, design tricks that you know we use to solve problems you use in creating music. And so uh, I guess one of my other side projects is trying to apply these things to you know or generate music and and better compose music using what I've learned from studying design. So I was going to ask you that: Have you ever used Triz to compose music? Um, actually, in some sense, yeah. Triz makes bad music, <laughs> but there's a lot of there's a lot of patterns which which happen. So, for example, um, I, syncopation or different ways of alternating the rhythms you could learn from a lot from the techniques people use in design. You could then apply to music. But absolutely, I mean, in, in music, you got to consider the whole experience, and right. it's all about telling a story. And uh, that's not what Triz is right. for. I got, but I got all my principles right. Why doesn't it sound <laughs> right. good? Well, good. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, it's been great to be here. Thanks, Stephanie. Um, and if you'd like to keep an eye on what Jono is up to, again, visit his website at P-A-L-O-J-O-N-O dot com. You've been listening to The Graduates, a radio show dedicated to graduate student research on KALX Berkeley. My name is Stephanie Gerson. Please send comments to the graduates KALX at AOL.com and join me next Monday from 12 to 1230.